Good evening, folks. We hope you guys have had a great day. I just wanted to run over a couple of things. I know we're winding down. I hope you'll keep coming these next two weeks, uh, the 16th and the 23rd. Uh, unless you're Bob and Alice, they go back to Minnesota. Okay, they're they're excused, but the rest of you who are still living here, um, a couple things. I I uh, will be finishing up Revelation, Lord willing, tonight. So you're going, okay? Well, we've got two weeks left. What are you going to do? Well, next Tuesday, uh, I'm going to be at the staff retreat. Uh, I'm not going to be here. So I invited a guest speaker in to take my place, and the person I thought probably could uh, do a good job and I think would, would uh, do a good job in my stead is my son. So my son is going to come down from Bible college, and he's going to do a Bible study next week um, for you, and I, I think you'll, you'll enjoy him. He's, uh, he's way beyond his years. I know I'm his dad. I'm Brad. <laughs> he really is. He's, he's an incredible young man. He's studying for the ministry. He's 19 years old and going to be a senior in college. Uh, he skipped a year of high school and a year of college. He's a pretty bright young man, and he knows his Bible better than I do. Okay? So uh, I think he'll have something really good to share with you folks. So if you know somebody that would be really interested in listening to a 19-year-old share the Word of God effectively, tell him to come out next week. I think he would really appreciate having a, a good turnout next week. But then the following week, the last week we're here, the 23rd, which will be the last time until we start back up in August, I'm going to be doing a lot on the Da Vinci Code and this whole spiritual instability thing that's going on in our world today that really is part of the foundation that we're talking about in Revelation with the Antichrist, you know, that whole foundation being laid. And we're going to talk a lot about that. I think that'll be an encouragement to you. And, and help us all to really get, you know, solidified. And, and, and uh, if we know of somebody who's spiritually unstable and who's being tossed back and forth, whether it's with Da Vinci Code, Judas Gospel, whatever it is out there, because uh, it's not going to quit. It's going to keep on getting worse. More and more is just going to be thrown out there. And it's going to cause people who are not grounded in the Word to be very shaken in their faith. And even through these things, I have seen Christians who are being shaken in their faith. And we don't want to see that happen. We want people to come to know the Lord in their personal relationship and then be grounded in the Word. And that's part of what the mind is all about. Grinding people. Not grinding, that's not good. <laughs> grounding people. Yeah, there you go. Grounding people in the Word of God and so forth. So anyway... That's what we're going to be dealing with on the 23rd. I think it'll be a good ending to our semester together. Now, let me just also give this heads-up commercial. We're going to do as good a job as possible as trying to get the word out about our study in the fall. Because I would love for this room to be filled uh, every week. We're going to be studying First and Second Peter next fall. Two of my favorite books. And if I had to use a word to describe the theme of those books, it would be hope. And we are all, you know, wanting hope in our lives, looking for hope in all different areas, needing hope to fill us, because there's a lot of hopelessness out there in the world, and there's a lot of people who struggle with this whole idea of hope. Well, guess what? We're going to spend the entire fall from August through the holiday when we break 
on First and Second Peter, looking at this whole idea of hope and how Peter ties in that theme throughout his entire writings. I think it could be one of the most encouraging Bible studies that anybody ever has went through. And so I'm hoping that not only will you all be back next fall, but that we'll bring a lot of people with us and we'll pack out this room and maybe even have to set up a few extra chairs. I would love to see that. Yes. I have two questions. Yes. When do we start up in the fall? That's a good question. <laughs> I don't know the answer to that. I need to ask Pastor George that answer. I want to say it's probably going to be sometime in the middle of August. Because you and see, fall? yeah. Well, I know. Yeah, but remember, follow somewhere. They in follow the mine, and that's where the mine follows the kids because yeah. of kaboom and everything that goes on Tuesday night. Well, school actually starts here in Chandler at the end of July. July Yeah. So school starts July 24th. So actually, by not starting to the middle of August, they're giving us a couple weeks break there. So. I think the mine will probably start somewhere around August 15th. I think that's a Tuesday. So it'll probably be starting somewhere around the 15th of August and go through, you know, like November, early December. And then we'll take a break and then pick back up sometime in January and then run through spring again. So, yes, that was... And and the other question is, can can you speak a little bit about the Da Vinci Code simulcast that's going to be on the 21st? Sure. Uh, Our church is tapping in to Lee Strobel uh, doing a a simulcast on the Da Vinci Code. If any of you have ever read Lee Strobel's books like Case for Faith, Case for Christ, you know how orderly and how organized he is in defending the faith. He's doing the same thing with the Da Vinci Code. Now, I can honestly say none of us have seen it because it's going to be a live broadcast. Mm-hmm. We're just trusting that the, the other stuff that Lee Strobel has, has done is so well done that we're trusting that this is going to be just as well done. Uh, we're going to be one, I think, of 800 churches in the United States that's going to be tapping into this broadcast that day. It's going to be at 4 o'clock on May 21st, which is a Sunday afternoon, and then rebroadcast the exact same program at 6 o'clock. So you know how normally we have five services on a Sunday. Well, that Sunday it's going to be looking a lot different around Cornerstone. We're going to have the same three normal services that Sunday morning, 8.30, 10, and 11.30, like we always do. Lynn's going to be preaching through the iLink service, you know, the iLink series that he's doing. But then that afternoon, we're not having, obviously, normal services. And then our normal 4.30 service doesn't start at 4.30 because of the simulcast. We're going to be starting at 4. And we're going to be sending out uh, mailers and cards and bulletin inserts and stuff so that people know this week our schedule is going to change that Sunday. It's not going to look the same because we don't want somebody coming at 4.30 that Sunday afternoon expecting, in a sense, a normal cornerstone service, and they're going to get the Da Vinci simulcast. I think the thing that we're trying as a staff and as leadership to wrap our minds around and try to navigate that day is exactly what the numbers are going to look like. Are people going to just, you know, people that obviously aren't interested in the Da Vinci Code and that whole thing, obviously they're going to come to one of the three services in the morning. And how many is that going to be? Are we going to be so overloaded? Are are, are we going to have five services of people trying to cram into three services? And what's that going to look like? Or are a lot of people going to, Say, you know what, for one Sunday, I'm going to bypass the regular service in the morning and I'm just going to come to the Da Vinci Code thing in the afternoon. Or especially people who live close to the church, are they going to do both? 
Are they going to come to a regular service and get that in and then come back in the afternoon for the Da Vinci Code? So I can honestly say we don't know how many people were going to show up that day for any of the services. We're just going to sort of go with the flow that day and figure it out as we go because there's really no way to predict. That's really all I can share with you about that. I, I do know this. Everything that I have... I've been in con- I've been the point person on the staff on this, and, and everything that I have come to find out from uh, the church communications network that's putting this on is it's going to be a very well done, very well done thing, and something that if you're interested in getting answers at all to the Da Vinci Code, you'll find them. You'll find them. Yes. An hour and a half. Four to five thirty, and then there'll be a half hour break, and then it'll start at six and go from six to seven thirty. So again, a little bit different. Yes. The Da Vinci Code simulcast? No, no. The, why did they decide to even make this a movie and stuff? Oh, make a movie of the Da Vinci Code? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Seriously, it's going to be a probably the Da Vinci Code movie will probably be the blockbuster of the spring and summer. Especially yeah. I mean, Ron Howard is a great director. Uh, Tom Hanks is one of the most well-known actors in Hollywood, and I think you know people who do go movie things, and I'm. It's funny. My major in college before I became a pastor was actually film and movies. And I never go to the movies. <laughs> Part of it is because I can't go to a... First of all, I don't think there's many good movies out there worth going to see. Okay? Yeah, right. and, and secondly, I can't go to a movie and watch it without seeing all the mistakes that are made because of my background. You know, seeing the, the microphone shadow or... Like I went to see a Civil War movie one time and here's an airplane. <laughs> you know, they didn't even edit out, you know. It's like, yeah, they're fighting the Civil War, and there's an airplane up there in 1860. You know, it's like, so, so I just—it's hard for me to go and enjoy a movie because I'm so critical about all the things that I see that they should have taken care of and that they didn't. So, but anyway, boy, we digress tonight. Yeah. Um, maybe I'm in the dark, but I haven't read the Adventure Code. Are we supposed to read it, or? No. I mean, I don't know anything about the dimension. That's a liberty issue. Uh, I, let me just tell you, just I don't have a problem with somebody reading the book or going to the movie as long as they, just like any other thing, it's just fiction. It's just it's not real. But I will say this, the book and the movie is a personal attack on Jesus Christ. And that I think we need to be aware of. Because the basic premise of the book is this. Jesus Christ is not God. Mary Magdalene is God. Jesus and Mary were married. They had children. Their children moved to France, became the Moravian line of kings that the French kings all passed down. And Mary Magdalene's bones are buried under the Louvre Museum in France. And that's where this guy, played by Tom Hanks, goes. And at the end of the movie and the end of the book, he actually kneels down and worships the bones of Mary Magdalene. That's what the movie's about. Does he know he's going to hell when this movie's over? (laughs) (laughs) Tell us how you really feel about it. Wow. By golly, you're right. (laughs) Okay, let's get into Revelation. (laughs) Revelation chapter 21. Hey, we got some good stuff to cover tonight, all right? We're going to be talking about the future of the saints, all right? That's you and I tonight, so we're in all this tonight, okay? The Future of the Saints, chapter 21. Here's what I want you to see tonight. He begins by talking about a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and earth had ceased to exist. What we have to realize is one day, God is literally going to not just 
sort of revamp the present heaven and earth. The Bible teaches he's totally going to do away with this heaven and earth, and he's going to make a new heaven and a new earth. In fact, Jesus said in the Gospel of Matthew, heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will never pass away. So Jesus was even saying, look, this earth as you know it, these heavens as you know it, this will all be gone one day, but my word will never pass away. And then keep your finger there in Revelation 21 and go back to 2 Peter, a passage we're going to look at in depth next fall. But we're going to touch on it tonight. 2 Peter chapter 3, beginning at verse 11. I want you to see what Peter says about this. And again, some people may say, well, what's the truth that the heavens and earth are going to pass away? How does that affect me living here and now as a saint of God, knowing that one day that the heavens and earth are going to pass away? Well, Peter tells us. Notice in 2 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 11. Since all these things are to melt away in this manner, what sort of people must we be conducting our lives in holiness and godliness? You see, Peter is saying... And this is what John has been saying all along in the book of Revelation, that the things that God is revealing about the future of the earth and the heavens and how everything is going to be, that the one primary thing that this should do for us is motivate us to godly living. It should make us better Christians. It should make us more like Jesus Christ. If what we have studied in the book of Revelation is not making us more like Jesus Christ, then we shouldn't have studied it. Because we're not just studying a scheme of prophecy. We're not just studying information about the end of the age. We're studying things that hopefully are impacting the way we live here and now because we understand through the book of Revelation that this is not what it's all about. That what is coming and the world to come is what it's all about. And therefore that should keep us focused on eternal perspectives and on eternal things. And it should actually affect every day the way we live our lives. That's what Peter says there in 2 Peter 3.11. Then he goes on to say in verse 12, While waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of this day the heavens will be burned up and dissolved, and the celestial bodies will melt away in a blaze. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness truly resides. You see, one of the reasons why God is just going to burn it really up and start all over again is because we understand when sin came into the world, sin tainted everything. And so instead of just trying to sort of remold the clay, if you will, this is just all going to be thrown away in a whole new heaven and new earth that's never been tainted by sin at all. So in other words, what God is doing is, in a sense, throwing back paradise again into our lap. Paradise was once here, in the garden, with Adam and Eve. But when sin entered, paradise was lost. And ever since then, from Genesis through Revelation, what you see is the plan of how God is going to restore paradise once again to us. Because that's been his goal all along. That men and women who know him, live in an intimate relationship with him in a place called paradise in which there is no sin and only righteousness dwells. And ever since sin came into the existence of mankind through Adam and Eve's fall, 
Obviously, we've been working our way back to that. And that's where the plan and purpose of God is going. And that's why the book of Revelation is so key. Because it's in the book of Revelation where we see the culmination of that. Where God finally turns it all around, destroys the present heavens and earth, remakes a new heaven and new earth, in which only righteousness has dwelt, ever will dwell, and never has been affected or tainted by sin. I don't know about you, but that sounds like a place that I want to spend eternity Alright? So, let's go back to Revelation 21. The next thing I want to share with you is this. So, the future of the saints is this new heaven and this new earth. And what's new is actually what's not. Let me repeat that, because I had to spend a lot of time coming up with that. (laughs) That's just the way my little brain thinks. So, what's new is primarily described in Revelation 21 and 22 as what's not. And what I mean by that, I think you'll see in a moment, is John is having a hard time, obviously, coming up with language to describe what this is going to be like. And instead of a lot of times describing what is there, in order for us to start to get a grasp of it, because again, we're only limited as to how we can truly grasp what this new heaven and this new earth is going to be like, he begins to tell us what's not there. So notice, beginning in Revelation 21, one of the first things he says in in verse 1, there's not going to be any more sea. No sea in the new heavens and new earth. Okay? Well, we know that the earth is mostly made up of the sea now, so that's going to look totally different than what we're used to. No sea. Why no sea? I don't know. The Bible doesn't say. God doesn't say. I will say this. I usually don't speculate, but I'm going to go out on a limb on this one. I think one reason could be that, let's remember something, again, going back to Genesis, that God used water at one time to destroy the whole earth, the worldwide flood of Noah. And it could be that one of the reasons why there's no sea in in a sense in the eternal state is because that would just be a reminder of that. And we're going to be past that because, again, we're we're in a whole new economy now. That, yeah, it's going to be in some ways similar to what we know down here on this earth, but in most ways it's going to be totally different than what we're used to. No more sea. All right? That's one thing. Then notice, go over here to verse 4. Also, no death. I like that. No death. We're not going to die. Nobody we know is ever going to die. No death. Verse 4. Also, notice, no mourning. No crying. And I like this one, too. No pain. No pain. Wow. Even if I stub my toe on my heavenly, you know, whatever, I'm not going to be that way. No pain. And, And again, to try to wrap our minds around this, don't forget that what we're describing here, the what's new is what's not, is not just something that lasts for a short time. This is for eternity, folks. This is forever and ever and ever. We're never going to die. There's never going to be any mourning or crying or pain. Then go over to verse 23 of chapter 21. Notice that there's not going to be the sun or the moon anymore. Well, we're used to every day seeing the sun and the moon, especially in Arizona. We're used to seeing the sun, all right? No sun, because the Bible says in the eternal state, the glory of God is the only light we're going to need. The glory of God is the only light we're going to need. So no sun, no moon, and then notice in verse 25, and there's no night. It's never going to be dark. Because remember, in the Bible, one of the things that 
that, that God uses to illustrate things is that light sort of illustrates righteousness and truth and the way of God, and darkness always symbolized, you know, the way of darkness and, and Satan and evil and all of that kind of stuff. And I think one of the reasons why there's no more night is, again, because there's not going to be any more sin there. It's going to be righteousness. It's going to be a perfect environment. And so, no night there. Which, again, also means no sleeping. Because we're not going to have to sleep. Because we're in glorified bodies. And we're never going to be tired. We're never going to think how much more we're going to get done. I mean, it's going to be amazing. You know? So if we like to sleep now, If you it. like to sleep now, oh boy. God God will change that somehow when you get there. Yeah. Notice that in verse 27, he says again, nothing unclean, nothing impure, no sin will ever enter this eternal state because throughout the book of Revelation, you find when we come to this point, there's a separation between what is unclean and what is clean, and there's going to be an eternal separation of that. And nothing or no one unclean, unrighteous, impure enters into this place. It's going to be a perfect environment. And then finally, in chapter 22, verse 3, and there's not going to be any more curse. The curse was given by God in the garden to Adam and Eve because of sin. Remember, he told the serpent, you're going to be cursed. You're going to start, you know, struggling on your belly. Then he told Adam about the curse and, and what would be cursed there. And he told Eve about the curse and what was going to happen there. And part of the eternal state is no more curse. So you begin to see here again, as John describes this new heaven and this new earth, that it's mostly about what's not there that we're used to having here. You know, no sun, no sea, no moon, no night, no pain, no death. A lot of the stuff that we're used to just being a part of life and existence down here on earth, one day is going to be no more. And I don't know about you, those are the ten things that God lists. There's probably a lot more, but even with those ten, I'm like, amen, I can't wait to get there. I don't know about you, but I'm excited to be there. Now, I'm going to stop here in just a moment, but if you go back to Revelation 21, notice something else that's new. In verse 2, he says, I also saw this holy city, this new Jerusalem. So now you've got a new heaven and a new earth, and now you've got a new Jerusalem. Not just a revamping of the old Jerusalem, but a new Jerusalem. And this new Jerusalem is descending out of heaven from God, and notice, made ready like a bride adorned for her husband. You see, one of the cool things that God is doing, and what Jesus promised, is that when he went back up to heaven after the ascension, that he was going to prepare for you and I a place. This is the place. When Jesus said in John 14, don't be troubled to the disciples. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. That place that Jesus talks about preparing for you and I and all of his followers is this new Jerusalem. Now, I don't know about you, but Jesus can make some pretty unbelievable things. I can't even begin to imagine what this place looks like. And we get a little glimpse of it here in Revelation tonight, but not a total thing. But it's going to be this new Jerusalem that descends out of heaven from God. So Jesus has been up there making this place, building this place for us to dwell in. And the new Jerusalem is really just the capital city of eternity. It's a place where I think sort of, you know, if we said, okay, where's home? Well, home's the New Jerusalem, but don't forget, 
because we have glorified bodies and we can zip here and zip there in the universe after we get there, that we can take a trip to the furthest places of the universe that God has created for us to enjoy and be back at home in the New Jerusalem that night if we want to. Not to sleep, because we're not going to sleep. But just to be, it's sort of a, it's sort of a place just, it, you know, the New Jerusalem. In my Father's house are many mansions, Jesus said. It's the New Jerusalem. In fact, let me show you this. This is a cool verse. I love this verse. Go to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. Look at what Abraham says here. I love this. Beginning in verse 8. Hebrews 11, beginning in verse 8. And again, notice that Abraham lived his life thousands of years before we're living. But he lived his life with his eye on this city. Think about that. Abraham. And because of that, he lived the way he did. In other words, he lived a life that pleased God, a godly life, a righteous life, because he was keeping his eye on what was to come, not on what is. Notice the Bible says this, beginning in Hebrews 11.8, by faith. Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place he would later receive as an inheritance. And he went out without understanding where he was going. That's me every day. <laughs> by faith, notice this, he lived as a foreigner in the promised land, as though it were a foreign country, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob. You see the cool thing about, about Abraham and, and how he's an example to us? is because he never settled here on earth. He was always sort of a, what we would call today a nomad, a sojourner, somebody that never settled because he, he was modeling for us. This earth is not some place where I'm going to put my roots down too deep because this isn't what my life is all about. My life is centered on what is to come. So I'm not going to settle down here and put all my eggs, if you will, in this basket called earth and on my earthly existence. So notice he goes on to say, who were fellow heirs of the same promise for verse 10. Here we go. For he was looking forward to the city with firm foundations whose architect and builder is God, the new Jerusalem. Abraham. Thousands of years before you and I even came into being, even Abraham was looking forward to that city whose builder was God. He says, I'm just going to dwell in a tent because I know he's making for me a new Jerusalem. He's building me a mansion. And so I'm not going to, I'm not going to get too caught up in, in, in this world. I'm looking for the world to come. And see, there, there are some people who over the years have said, well, you know what? You can get to the point where you're so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. The thing is, I don't find that in the Bible. I find just the opposite in the Bible. That actually the more heavenly minded we are, the more effective we will be on earth as a servant of God. Paul said in, in, in Colossians chapter 1, set your affection on things above, not things on the earth. How much clearer can we get than that? And that's all tying then back to this whole concept of the new Jerusalem, of the new heaven and the new earth, and that that should be our focus rather than getting caught up in all the things that we get caught up in and distracted with here on this earth. All right? Can I ask you a quick question? You sure can, because I'm just going to keep you <laughs> Abraham, how did he know? Was that from 53 Isaiah in the Old Testament? Or how did he, where was his revelation? I think it was just personally revealed to him by God. I do. I think that was one of those deals where... Now, certainly the Old Testament prophesies about that coming city, 
But I think at this point, I think God just personally revealed that to Abraham. He said, Abraham, I know I'm calling you to a place that you're never really going to settle in. But I'm making for you a place that you're going to settle in for all of eternity. So even though you may feel like you're unsettled on earth for a hundred years, you're going to be totally settled for all of eternity up there. And it was a way to just say to Abraham, just keep trusting in me and keep moving forward and keep living that way. And don't, again, get your get yourself too attached to this earth. And I think that's why Abraham lived in tents his whole life. When you think about it, Abraham lived in tents his, most of his life. He could have had one of the biggest houses of anybody, uh, but he lived in tents. And, and it was a model for us, just again... Not to get too caught up in earth and what's going on down here, but to realize we're just passing through. I'm just passing through. That's what Abraham was doing. If you go back to Revelation 21, I love this. Then look at verse 3. The very first thing it says about what actually we're going to experience when we get to the new Jerusalem is this. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look. The residence of God is among human beings. He will live among them and they will be his people and God himself will be with him. Wow. Think about this. Jesus said in the Gospel of Matthew, Blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. And one day, my friends, we are going to see God. We're going to be face to face with God. And the restoration of full fellowship between God and men is going to be restored. You see, full fellowship was once felt by Adam and Eve and God. But again, when sin entered in, that full fellowship, that face-to-face fellowship and intimacy with God was broken and will be broken until we get to this point. Now, through Christ, we can have fellowship with God and we can have a relationship with God. But it's not full yet because we don't see him. He's not he's not there. We are walking by faith, not by sight. But the Bible promises us a day where one day we will see Jesus, the one who died for us and who loved us from the foundation of the world face to face. In fact, go over to chapter 22. Let me show you this in case some of you are doubting me. Notice what it says in Revelation 22, 4. And they... That's you and I, we're in there, we'll see his face. You remember the popular song a couple years ago by Casting Crowns? What was the name of it? What will I do when I get to heaven? What was the name of it? I can only imagine. Mercy me. Mercy me. I'm thinking of the different. Anyway, I can only imagine. Yes. I think about that song when I thought about. I don't know the name of it or who did it, but I I think about that song. But I do. I think about that song because that song is really going along with what we're seeing here. One day, you and I are going to stand face to face with Jesus Christ. What are we going to? You know, what's it going? What's that going to be like? And to see the scars and to see His love for us on his face. And I just think, and again, I I could be telling, I just think that our God is just going to grab us and give us the biggest embrace and and just blow us away. I just just think that's the way it's going to be. He's just going to say, come, you know, enter into the joy of the Lord. Well done, thou good and faithful servant, you know. 
I just think he's just going to be so happy uh, for us to be there and to be in that full fellowship and to finally see the one who died for us. I just, I can't, I, like the song says, I can only imagine what that is going to be like. But the Bible says it's going to happen. We're going to see his face. Unbelievable. So I hope so far that this has been encouraging to you. Oh, yeah. A lot of stuff to look forward to, huh? All right. Then, let me just go a little bit further and then I'll stop. So notice then, in verse 4, he wipes away every tear from our eyes. Death will exist no more. Mourning, crying, or pain. For the former things have ceased to exist. And then one of the things then that we're getting there is if the former, if, if, if there's things that are going to pass away, then again, that reminds me, I need to retain an eternal perspective on my life down here. Because even Paul told the Corinthians, for the form of this world is passing away. So why get caught up in this world whenever it's going to be transitory? It's going to be temporary. We looked at that a couple weeks ago. Remember when we went to that passage in Hebrews where the Bible says, he shakes the earth. And he's going to separate that which can be shaken from that which cannot be shaken. And that which cannot be shaken is the kingdom that he's going to give to us. Wherefore, since we have a kingdom that cannot be shaken, the writer of Hebrews says, let's, let's worship him like never before because we have an unshakable kingdom that's going to be placed into our hands. One that's never going to change, wear out, deteriorate, all this kind of stuff. So keep that eternal perspective. In those tough days, my friends, those days, even like Chris was saying, Sunday, you don't feel like keeping on, keeping on. You feel like throwing in the towel. You feel like quitting. You feel like your world is overwhelming. You feel like you can't go on. Remember what awaits us. And that will be a motivation to keep on. Because the Bible says in Romans 8.18, Paul said to the Romans, For I reckon that our present sufferings are not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us one day when we get there. So Paul's saying, I know that you're going through some tough things, but compared to the eternal weight of this glory, there's no comparison. And I realize that's hard for us because a lot of the things that we went through in our life have been so painful and so tough. We're saying to God, God, I can't believe that that's going to outweigh the things that I've been through. And God's just saying, trust me, I'm telling you. <laughs> I'm telling you, when you get there and you see this new Jerusalem and you, you're in your glorified body... Wow, it's just going to blow us away. And then, notice, the one seated on the throne said, verse 5, Look, I'm making all things new. Wow. He's not just going to, like, reshape something. He's just going to make it all new. We're going to be new creations in our glorified bodies. Where we're living is going to be this brand new, beautiful, untainted by sin place called the New Jerusalem and in the new heavens and the new earth. And then he says, write it down because these words are reliable and true. He also said to me, it is done. And we're going to come back to those words in just a few minutes. But here's what I want you to see too. He emphasizes the fact that the one speaking is unique. Unique. And that's part of what we've learned in Revelation. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ, the glorified Christ. And he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And so he's placing great emphasis on the one who's speaking, who's saying these things, because he's saying, 
on the heels of these things are reliable and true. You can bank on them. You can, you can base your eternal soul on these things. You can trust me on these things. And the reason why? Because of the one who's speaking and his character. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He's never lied. He cannot lie. God cannot lie. He is faithful to his promises and to his word. And everything that he has promised is going to come true. And then, to the one who is thirsty, I will give water free of charge from the spring of the water of life. In other words... And, and friends, what I'm offering you, it's free to you. All you have to do is accept it. All you have to do is receive it. It's free. Just like he was saying to the woman by the well, if you knew who it was who was speaking to you, who was offering you this free gift of this water, you would ask for it. But notice something here. If this wonderful gift is free, how comes there are so many people who refuse it? The answer is in this word. The word thirsty. There's no thirst there. And it, what it really means is that in their mind and in their heart and in their life, they don't need what God's offering. They see no need. You see, it's only to those who recognize their thirst and their need who take this free, wonderful gift that God has given through His Son, Jesus Christ. In fact, He repeats this. If you go over to chapter 22... One of the very last things that Jesus says in his word is verse 17. And it's an invitation to anyone who would come. And the spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wants it take the water of life free of charge. It's there. It, this is this whole wonderful thing we're talking about. The new heavens, the new earth, the new Jerusalem, this wonderful place in which righteousness dwells and there's no sin and no pain and no death and no mourning and no crying and no night. It's there, free of charge. But the reason why a lot of people don't accept it and don't receive it is because they're not thirsty. In their minds, I don't need God. As far as I'm concerned, I've got everything I need. But again, when they say that, remember... They're totally looking at this from what? An earthly perspective. So in their minds, yeah, I've got everything that I need on earth. I got a home, I got a car, I got a good job, I got a family, I got a yeah. But the problem is, as we've learned throughout the book of Revelation, but those things don't last. They're not eternal. So a relationship with God is eternal. So they're looking at things totally from a bottom perspective rather than from a top perspective on life and on things. Yes? A question. If, so if you were to die now and, and you go to heaven, so to speak, this, these things that he's talking about in the New Jerusalem aren't in existence in heaven now? There's no. going to be seas in heaven now? Right. There's going to still be those well, kinds of things? I, I think there's a heaven now that, that people who die in Christ go to. Paul says to be absent from the body, 2 Corinthians 5, 8, is to be present with the Lord. So they go to heaven. But, but heaven is not this. This new Jerusalem will one day descend out of heaven, down close to what we now think of as where we exist. But God is also going to destroy this heaven and this earth, and it's going to look totally different. But remember, we've got to get through the thousand-year millennial kingdom. After the thousand-year millennial kingdom is when this will take place. But I thought heaven was supposed to be already a place where there's you know, no mourning and no it is. death and no, all those things. It, it is. This is just sort of a reiteration of that 
for the eternal state. But this is what we're going to have to look forward to forever and ever and ever. Yeah. Don't forget, though, the millennial kingdom is a little bit different than the eternal state and that Jesus is here on earth. And one of the other things that we have to realize, too, is this new Jerusalem, we're going to talk more about this, is actually a cube. All right? It descends out of heaven. And I believe it's going to hover somewhere above the earth. Okay? It's not going to land anywhere. It's just going to hover there. And instead of how we know the universe works today, the new heaven and the new earth and all the planets that God recreates and plants, they're going to revolve around the new Jerusalem. So our, our you know, the solar system and Milky Way galaxy and all the stuff that we understand through science now, throw all that out the window when we get to this. Because you never learned about the New Jerusalem in science class. I don't think you did, okay? But the New Jerusalem will sort of be the centerpiece of this new heaven and this new earth. And the new earth and any other planets that God creates stuff will revolve. And this will be the center, the New Jerusalem, all right? So, again, that's going to look different for us. Because we're used to, you know, we're used to things just being a little bit different than that. And things are going to be... A lot different, I think, than even what we can imagine. We try to project ourselves into this state at this time. But good, good stuff. Any other thoughts or comments or yes? Just, just wondering where you got the thought that that would be the center of the universe. Well, I think that the New Jerusalem is taught in the Bible as being the center of where we're all going to dwell. So it, it's sort of going to be, you know, the the main the main place, the main headquarters, the main home, the main place where we're going to be at. Um, and again, I think we're going to be able to go different places and stuff. We're not like stuck in the New Jerusalem because we learned last week we're going to rule and reign with Christ and we're all going to have different responsibilities. But the New Jerusalem is sort of the place, I think, where God is saying that's sort of where you have like a... A base where you can you can because again he's trying to reveal things to us that that in our humanness we've got to try to wrap our minds around and for us we're always thinking of a a home a place that we can call home a place of residence and that's why he said in chapter twenty one verse three look the residence of God is among human beings and that's on the heels of talking about the New Jerusalem now again we know. Well, God dwells everywhere because God's omnipresent. Yeah, but I believe Jesus Christ will literally be in the New Jerusalem. Okay, and if we want to stop by and see Jesus, you know, hey Jesus, I'm, you know, gonna, well, it's just incredible, incredible. Yes. Well, I think we'll see, as Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And I think that we'll see Jesus. God the Father and God the Holy Spirit are spiritual. And I, I don't think that we'll see them the way we think of seeing them. But we will see Jesus. And if we've seen Jesus, we've seen God in all his fullness because Paul said in Colossians 2.8, In Him, Jesus, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. So to see Jesus is to see God in all His fullness. Yeah, well, I think that is God. You know, He is God in all His fullness. 
And I think that in some way, I think the Father and the Holy Spirit will manifest themselves as he did in the Bible. I mean, for instance, like when Jesus was baptized, the Holy Spirit manifested himself as a dove coming down over Jesus. when he was, And I think there will be ways that we will know the Father or the Spirit is manifesting himself. But again, we're trying to comprehend a spiritual thing in a, in a, in a temporal, human, earthly thing. And that, that's hard to do. That's hard to do. Yeah, good stuff. Good stuff. Hey, yes? I've always believed, and I may be clear on that when you die, you come face-to-face with Jesus also. Am I incorrect there? Oh, yeah. Like I said, Paul said to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But you see his face in the heaven yeah. So just not at this point, but even when you. Right. And I think, though, for us, what this is just saying is that He's going to be available for fellowship and intimacy for all of eternity with us. It's not just going to be, and, and this is the thing that's hard for us to wrap our minds around, is that I don't think Jesus is going to like spend a thousand years with me at the exclusion of spending time with you. He'll be able to, being God, and somehow how this whole spiritual thing works, just like today, if God's answering his prayer phone, because I'm praying to him, he can't go, oh, wait a minute, i got to put you on hold. Brian's trying to get me. You know, God can hear all of thousands of prayers all at the same time. All Talk about multitasking. You know, God is the ultimate multitasking. And so I think in the eternal state, it's just simply reminding us that God in some way We'll be face-to-face in fellowship with him throughout eternity. And it won't be like, well, if I spend time with God, I'm taking time away from him spending time with other people. I don't think it'll be that way. Again, I can't explain that, but I think that that's sort of what he's trying to say there. Yeah. Yeah, but I don't think that people who die today who know Christ somehow are shortchanged in the sense of, oh... This is, this is all I get? You know, I don't think that at all. Don't think that at all. I think heaven is a wonderful place, and just being with Jesus has got to be unbelievable. But I think what he's reminding us of here is, but Jesus is going to create a place that's just going to be beyond our realm of comprehension, and this is all part of it, too. Yeah. yeah. Isn't it kind of ironic that all the greatest minds, and if you read, read those books that Lee Strobel has written, have spent all this time pondering the universe and when it began and the Big Bang, and it's just all going to go. Yeah, yeah, it is. So it's yeah. Just exactly. It's going to go. Yeah, it's going to go. You know, like, it's the first time I've seen it explained with the New Jerusalem being the center of the universe, but now that we get into these chapters, we come to the conclusion because how it says that the sun is no more needed, and that where today the sun is in the solar system is the center of the universe. Right. That is now removed. Yeah, the focal point will be the New Jerusalem because we're going to learn later on, yeah, in chapter 22, that the temple even doesn't exist now, that Jesus is, in a sense, the temple, and people come to worship. He's not contained in a building or anything. He is the temple to worship. Yeah, good point. Notice beginning in verse 9 of chapter 21, the beauty of what's new. And again, I don't want to take all the time, but notice like in verse 11, the city, and again, this is why I think it's the center, because he's not describing just a general place saying, this is the new heaven and new earth. He's always referring to this city, the city, the new Jerusalem. So he says, the city, verse 11, possesses the glory of God. 
Its brilliance is like a precious jewel, like a stone of crystal clear jasper. I mean, I, I can't even imagine. And then it has a massive high wall with 12 gates, 12 angels at the gates. The names of the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel was written on the gates. There are three gates east, three gates, and you get the picture. Notice, the wall of the city, verse 14, has 12 foundations, and on them are the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the land. Unbelievable. Then, beginning in verse 15, he leaves the beauty for a moment, and he talks about the breadth of this city. Now, this is amazing. The breadth of this city, because again, people say, are we all going to fit? <laughs> Let me tell you something. Here's what this is teaching. And I can't do it justice, and you know how terrible of an artist I am. The New Jerusalem, according to chapter 21, beginning at verse 15, they measure the New Jerusalem. The New Jerusalem is 1,500 miles wide, 1,500 miles long, and 1,500 miles deep. And that's why I say I can't, I'm not an architect. But it basically forms a cube. And when you form a cube that way, let me give you some perspective. Don't laugh, okay? <laughs> this is America. I know. That's Florida. It's way bigger than I know. I can't go. I just, okay. Here's Canada up here. Oh, Canada. All right. Uh, here's Mexico. All right. Here's Denver, Colorado. That's important for my illustration, okay? It's somewhere there, all right? And here's New York City, all right? Now, if you take 15, 15, and 15, here's what you've got. You've got a city that goes from Canada to Mexico, that goes from Denver to New York City, but also, don't forget, is a cube. So it, it not only, it's three-dimensional, so it's not only from Canada to Mexico and Denver to New York, it also goes that way, 1,500 miles. They have, they have done research on this and said that this city is so huge that it could hold millions, if not billions of people comfortably, and we still would have plenty of space where we're not running into each other. That's how huge that city is. If you, if you would plot that out, that city is unbelievably huge. Well, and that's assuming that in our new glorified bodies we're exactly the same dimension. Exactly. Maybe we're smaller, but it doesn't matter. Oh, that would be cool. Who knows? Who knows? We'd be like little Smurfs or something. Like that. <laughs> <laughs> no, but no, I know what you mean. But you know what I mean. Who knows? No, exactly. <laughs> I got a head start. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to be small. No, no. I'll have hair. Nobody will recognize me. Yeah. Have you any idea how many people? I mean, millions, billions. Here's what the Bible, the Bible uses this term. The Bible uses a word in the original Greek, which is myriads, M-Y-R-I-A-D-S. That's the word in the original Greek. And it literally means, to not help you, Ramona, a numberless number. That's what the word myriads means. So no, God really doesn't tell us, except there's just going to be lots of people there. Because again, we've already learned in the book of Revelation, there's going to be people there from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every place around the earth. And don't forget, that city is going to house all the Old Testament saints, like Abraham and Moses and all that. We're going to get to sit down and, Moses, how was it? You know, <laughs> you know. So we're going to, all the Old Testament saints, all the New Testament saints, all the tribulation saints, 
All those who were born during the millennial kingdom that gets to know God. I mean, so there's a lot of people. All the way back from Adam and Eve, all the way through the last person that accepts Christ as their Savior, that's a lot of people that's going to be housed there. I mean, when we get there, there's not going to be like... When, when you get to this point, no, then there'll be that separation where people can't change their mind, you know? No, what I meant was, like, no new people born. Oh, no new people born. No, no, no marriage in heaven and no children in heaven at this point. That's all gone. That's all gone. Yep. We just exist. And here's what we do. Notice this. If you go over to verse twenty, uh, chapter 22, verse 1, notice the provision of this new city. Then the angel showed me not only the beauty of the city, but the breadth of the city, but the provision of the city, that in this city there's going to be the river of the water of life, water as clear as crystal pouring out from the throne of God and from the Lamb, flowing down the middle of the city's main street. On each side of the river is the tree of life producing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month of the year. Its leaves are for the healing of the nations, and there will be no more curse, and the throne of God and the Lamb, see, will be in the city. Again, that's why I believe it's the headquarters, the capital city, the very centerpiece of this new heaven and this new earth, because the Bible teaches that's where the Lamb's going to be. He's going to be in the city. Okay? And then notice what? His servants, meaning part of what we're going to do, we're going to serve. We're going to serve God by ruling and reigning with Him. We're going to worship Him, verse 3. And we will see His face. His name will be on their foreheads, which I think just speaks of identifying us as His. Night will be no more. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun because the Lord God will shine on them and they will reign forever and ever. I just say hallelujah to that. That's pretty good stuff. Uh, let's go back. I want you to see the beauty of this city again in verse 21 of 21. Look at 21, 21. These 12 massive gates, notice what the gates are. They are 12 pearls. Each one of the gates is made from just one pearl. I want to see the oyster that made that pearl. That's going to be a huge pearl. I mean, think about it. Or we're really tiny. Or we're really tiny. I like that. I like that. You know, I like. I'm starting to buy into this concept. My whole theology. And then notice this: the main street at the end of verse 21 of the city is pure gold. And you know what? Pure gold, like transparent glass. Wow. We're gonna be walking on those streets of gold. We're gonna be looking at those pearls. There's not, I mean, it's just unbelievable what God has prepared for. And you know, the, again, guess what? We didn't deserve any of this. I mean, when we stop and think that what God has prepared for us, it's not like, oh, we're, we're so wonderful that, you know, he had to do this for us. This is all by his grace. He just wants to do it for us because he loves us that much. And again, let's not forget, the invitation is free to anybody who's thirsty. The problem is, today, there's not a lot of people who feel that need and that thirst for God to accept this wonderful, free invitation to be a part of what He has prepared. Then if you go to chapter 22, verse 6, this is what I wanted to get to as we end our study of Revelation. We've looked at the future of the saints. I want you to see the faithfulness of the Savior. 
because he really emphasizes this in these two chapters. Because the angel said to me, these words are reliable and true. And the reason being, because the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, is the one who said this in verse 6. God himself told us this, and that's why it's faithful, and that's why it's true. Now, that's not the first time we saw those words, is it? If you go back to chapter 21, look at verse 5. Notice he said these words before. When after he says, look, I'm making all things new, then he said to me, write it down because these words are reliable and true. And don't miss verse 6. He also said to me, it is done. You know, here's what God is saying. He's saying, I'm telling you because of who I am, that this is so reliable, this is so true, this is so going to happen, that in my mind, it's already happened. That's what that word, that phrase means. It is done. It means it's already happened in the mind of God. As far as God's concerned, everything that he's sharing with us in Revelation, it's there. It's happened already because it's going to happen. In other words, there's no chance of this not happening. It's like when Jesus was hanging on the cross about ready to give up the Spirit. And he, what's he say? It's finished. It's done. Everything that I needed to accomplish to secure man's salvation, it's done. It's finished. Nothing needs to be added to it. Nobody can come along in history and say, Jesus, your sacrifice on the cross wasn't enough to secure me a relationship with God. No, it's finished. It's done. That's why the veil of the temple was rent in two. That's why it's over. Nothing needs to be added to what Jesus has done. Same concept here. God is saying, these words are reliable and true, and as far as I'm concerned, it's already happened. Now, I want you to take that same truth in the concept, and I want you to apply that to the promises that God has given you in His Word, because here's how we can apply this to where we are today. God has given us all promises in His Word that He would say the same thing. He would say, do you realize that what I'm promising you, it's as if it's already happened. It's done. So don't worry about it. That's why God says there's no reason for a follower of Christ to ever be worried or anxious about anything. And that's why he tells us in Philippians to pray about it, but not to be anxious. Why? Because I promised you these things. It's as good as done. You don't have to worry about me not coming through on my end of the bargain. It's going to happen. It's done. So when Jesus promises... I'll never leave you, nor forsake you, or turn my back on you. You and I can take that promise to the bank. I never have to get to a point in my life where I say, God, I think you've turned your back on me. Now, we, we, we say that. We say that. But when we say that, we're forgetting about this truth. That God can't turn his back on us. You see, God has obligated himself. By his own word. God, in a sense, has said, there's some things that I have to do and some things that I cannot do. I have, in a sense, you know, we shouldn't put God in a box. But there are some ways, and I, I hope you understand where I'm coming from with this, there are some ways that God has put himself in a box by saying, I'm going to do this and I'm not going to do this. And in a sense, obligated himself to do that because he has to. Because he, he said he would. And there's no way he can go back on what he has said. And that's what he's saying there. It's, it's as good as done. You might as well just, you're already there. You see, from God's perspective, every person in this room tonight who knows Jesus Christ, you're already in the New Jerusalem, as far as he's concerned. You're already there enjoying it. 
so, so what that means and how that translates into how, how do I live my life here? Because we're already there, that should even motivate us to be a, a better follower of Christ down here. Because as far as God's concerned, this is what awaits me. What a motivation to live right. And that's why the Bible says the goodness of God, Romans 2.4, should lead us to repentance. The goodness of God. As we begin to think about the goodness of God and what He has awaiting for us, it should motivate us to live the kind of Christian life that brings all honor and glory to Him. And then just a couple other things. So notice, as He obligates Himself, look at verse 7 of chapter 22. Look, I'm coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the word of the prophecy expressed in this book. God inspired the book of Revelation not only to reveal the glory of His Son, but to call us as believers in Jesus Christ to live godly, obedient lives in light of His soon return. That's what it means by keeping the words of the prophecy expressed in this book. I'm coming soon, so pay attention to what I'm telling you in this book. And then look, he repeats it. Verse 12. Look, I'm coming soon, and my reward is with me to pay each one according to what he has done. So live accordingly. I could come at any time. And then, one final time. Verse 20. The one who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming soon. And what's John's response? Amen. Come on, Lord Jesus, come. I can't wait. You come. I hope that is our desire. Jesus is saying, I'm coming. I could come at any time. So hopefully we are in a place with God where we can say, God, you come on. Now, not every Christian is living their lives lined up that way. In fact, I'm just going to share two other things with you and then I'm going to wrap it up for the night in case any of you have any comments or questions. If you turn back to the book of 1 John, I want to show you these important words that hopefully will stir our hearts and motivate us. 1 John chapter 2. And look at verse 28. 1 John chapter 2, verse 28. This is one of the first verses that I ever outlined or highlighted in my Bible as a young Christian. 1 John chapter 2, verse 28. And now, little children, remain or abide in Him. As Jesus talked about how important it is to abide in Him in John chapter 15 as the true vine. So that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from Him in shame when He comes back. Whoa. You see, the Bible's teaching there's going to be two kinds of Christians when Jesus comes. They're going to be those who are living a life for God and who... In a way, and I realize all of us, because none of us are perfect, but in a way, we're going to be able to be confident before Him because we're, we're not messed in sin and we're not walking away from... We're, we're where we should be. Okay, We're not maybe all we should be or what we should be, but we're where we should be in that sense. And so we can have a confidence when He comes back. But notice in that verse, it also says that there are going to be some 
who are following him who are going to be ashamed of the way they're living when he comes. Doesn't mean they're not going to go to heaven. Doesn't mean they're not going to be part of this great thing we've been talking about, the new heavens, the new earth, and the new Jerusalem. It just simply means they're living a sloppy, apathetic Christian life. They, they, are, they are not allowing what the future is to motivate them to godly living, to obedient living, to a life of Christ-likeness. And they're living a very sinful, sloppy Christian life. And they're, when Jesus comes, they're going to be ashamed of that. Because the very first thing that's going to go through their mind is, man... Why, why did you know? Why did I get like this? Why did I allow myself to get caught up on these earthly things and be living for these transitory things? Whenever, wow, here it is, here it is. But the great thing is that John also says, when we see him, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And all of us, whether we're living for Christ at the time or whether we're not, we're all going to be instantaneously transformed by the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then one other thought, if you go back to Revelation one last time as we wrap up our study of Revelation, the very last verse is very significant. Because notice, he ends the Bible. The last message of the Bible is a message of grace. He says, the grace of our Lord Jesus be with all. And that's enabling grace. Meaning, how can I be what I should be? By allowing the grace of God to flow through my life. Remember, the grace of God is the power that God can give me, enable me to be what I need to be, who I need to be, when I need to be it. That's why Paul could say in 1 Corinthians, by the grace of God, I am what I am. That's why when he got the thorn in the flesh, and he went to God and said, God, take this thorn away. God says, no, my grace is sufficient for you. That's why Peter could say, you are the God of all grace. And all we have to do is cast our care upon him because he cares for us. And then the God of all grace will establish us, strengthen us, give us the endurance and everything that we need. His grace is sufficient. We just need to tap into it. And that's why the last message of the Bible is a reminder of his grace. For as we have studied through the book of Revelation, we have been, yeah, overwhelmed by a lot that God has planned for this earth. But the one practical thing that we are left with at the end of the day, at the very end of the book is, and whatever you face tomorrow, Christian, as you look forward to that city whose builder and architect is God, is Abraham, is that God's grace will get you through. God's grace will enable you and I to do whatever we need to do, whatever responsibilities he's called us to, whatever thing we're dealing with, whatever physical, emotional, or spiritual thing is going on in our life, his enabling grace will get us through that day and keep us moving in the right direction. And that's the last message God wanted to give to his people in the Bible, not just the book of Revelation. Obviously, the last book of the Bible, the last message God wanted to give his people. I have the grace that you need just tap into that grace. Don't reject it, but receive it. And you and I can rise to the level that God would have us to rise to. Folks, I have so enjoyed sharing the book of Revelation with you. I hope you've enjoyed it too. Thank you. And we got through it. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Any comments or questions? Yes.
Yes. I think it's referring to the Bible as an applied whole because you cannot separate one book from the other. Jesus taught this in the Gospels. He said the word of God cannot be broken. So whatever is said about one book of the Bible applies to the whole. So even though these two verses about don't tamper with the Bible, and again, one of the reasons why we shouldn't tamper with the Bible is because these words are faithful and true. They're reliable. So when people begin to take away what they don't like or add things that's not in there that they like, they're tampering with the word of God, and God says, that is no small thing. I take offense at that, because it's my word. It'd be just like if we wrote a book or something, and said, this is, this is my thoughts on this, and then we had somebody come in after the fact, and edit it all out, and change it all, and, it's like, and then say, well, that, that's what Jeff wanted to say. Well, no, it wasn't. You changed it. And God doesn't take too kindly to changing his reliable, trustworthy word. But good point, but I think that that applies, because Jesus taught the word of God is not broken. And so what applies to one book of the Bible applies to another. Yeah. Don't tamper with the Bible. <laughs> and you think about it. How many people today take out things in the Bible they don't like, put things into the Bible they do like? God says, I'm going to pay for that one. Yes. Um, when we get to the New Jerusalem, then what will we do with the Bible? Are we going to still read it? I think, I think that we will study God and his word throughout eternity because the Bible teaches that God is an infinite being, meaning there's no end to God. So we could study about God forever and ever and never come to the end of understanding all about God. So that's going to be a cool thing. We're not only going to serve him and worship him and praise him and rule and reign with him, I think it's going to be a place of learning. We're not going to cease to learn once we get there. I think we will continue to learn about the depth of his word. And we're going to see things in his word that we didn't see down here. That He's going to say, you never saw this. It's like, whoa, you're right. I, I didn't see, I think, yeah, I think we're going to have a tremendous, you want to talk about the mind. We're, we're going to have a mind in heaven It's going to be unreal because I think God's going to teach it. And he's going to reveal things out of his word and out of him. That, that we've never known up to that point. But yeah, it's a great thought too. But in the past you said that you know, we'll know the mind of Christ, right? And We're going to have the mind of Christ. In fact, in so, a sense, we have the mind of Christ now through the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. But wouldn't it be much more, uh, have much more depth? And, oh, and yeah. So that maybe you don't have to study the Bible in the sense that you'll know intuitively? In some ways, I think that's true. Because the Bible says we know now darkly, but then we're going to know a little bit brighter, and right. it's not going to be as dark because we have this, we have this sinful nature, and we have this human body and this warped mind, if you will, that we can't see totally. And I think you're right. I think that in some ways, when we get there, we're going to have our eyes open instantly to some things, and I think other things. God's just going to want to take His time to share with us some things too. But yeah, great, great stuff. Good stuff to think about. It. <laughs> Hopefully we, we can all go to bed tonight and lay our heads on that pillow and go, ooh, what I got to look forward to? And you know what? If Jesus comes tonight, this is good. This is good. This is good. Yes? When the Bible talks about the first fruits, mm-hmm. what kind of I think the first fruits in the book of Revelation speak about those first part of the Jewish nation that came to Christ. Uh, because in the book of Revelation we see where the church is gone and God deals again with the nation of Israel as a whole. And when it uses that term first fruits, it's speaking about the first part of the Jewish nation that will come to Christ. Yeah, good stuff. And you know what? If you guys have questions further about Revelation, 
Uh, I'll be here on the 23rd, and uh, you can always see me around the church on Sunday or any other day of the week I'm here, and call me up at the office or whatever. If you know me, and my wife can verify that, I love to talk about the Bible. I'll talk about the Bible for hours with you if you want to. I never get tired of that. So, And again, I'll invite you back next week. I think, I'm not 100% sure, but I think my son will be here teaching next week. And then I'll be here on the 23rd. And uh, you guys have a great time next week. I'll miss you. I'll be praying for you. But we are going up the road and have a staff retreat and try to get some great vision for what... The Lord holds for us for this new building and the future of our church. We're excited about some things that are already happening, and we'll share those with you in the days to come. Let's close with prayer. Father, we again just thank you so much for Jesus, and Lord, we just thank you for the future that we have through him. Lord, as we read these chapters and studied these again, we were just blown away by what's coming our way one day. We just can't even imagine it. Lord, we also pray that our study throughout Revelation has also been a motivation for our godly lives. And that, Father, not only will we strive to live godly, Christian, Christ-honoring lives, but, Lord, we'll also be looking for opportunities to share Christ with those who are thirsty. Because, Father, we recognize that there are some people who are not thirsty at all for you. They don't want anything to do with you, your word, your church, or anything. We understand that. But, Father, we also understand that you put us into contact with people who are thirsty. They're looking for God. They're searching for God. They're searching for meaning in their life. And they're, they're just ripe for somebody to come alongside and to share the good news of Jesus Christ with them. Lord, help us to be faithful when those opportunities arise. These things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, guys. You're great. Thank you. Have a great evening.